Welcome to our Voices of Africa podcast, brought to you by Africa Practice, a strategic advisory firm supplying insights and advocacy solutions to corporations, investors, governments, and foundations in Africa. In a world with complex and interdependent challenges, we take the guesswork out of business engagement. We enable our clients to see more clearly in order to drive sustainable and equitable development. Hello and welcome to this edition of Voices of Africa. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Maximilian Jarrett. Max is a manager at the International Energy Agency based in Paris. He spent a career over 30 years now working in Africa, pursuing development in Africa at various institutions. Before he joined the IEA, he was the director in charge of the Geneva-based Africa Progress Panel Many of you will know that that was chaired by the late Kofi Annan. And prior to that, at the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa, where I think I met you first, Max, in Addis Ababa. But I'm not going to talk too much about your your distinguished career because I want you to introduce your background to our audience. You've got a fascinating, not only a career, but background as a, a growing up in Liberia. So hello, Max, and welcome. Hello, Marcus, and thanks for inviting me. And first of all, I must say that you know I spent many years, over a decade, with the BBC World Service, presenting radio programs, editing programs, producing them, and always looking out for talent on air. And I most certainly would have hired you. You're going to embarrass me team. now. That's a no, good no, really. You've, you've got, you've got, you've got the, the intonation, the pace, <laughs> and just you know you you draw the audience in. So, as a, a former radio man, who's always a radio man, really, I'd say that yeah, welcome. Welcome, welcome, Marcus, to the to the club. Well, I don't know if I should share this, but it's been 18 years now since I founded Africa Practice, and I love my job. There was a time when I toyed with either being a priest or an actor, and I think it was the opportunity to have an audience and to speak at least once a week on a Sunday to parishioners or get up on the stage. This comes slightly naturally to me, but it's flattering to be told by a professional like you that my intonation is hitting the right tone. So thanks well, We for have that. a lot in common then, because um, although I've never really been an actor, I am drawn to the creative and the lesbian art. And also, I'm, I have a very kind of, a, how would we say this, uh, spirituality is a very important part of my makeup and my life. And at one stage, as a very young person also, I, 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 had, um, I was listening to a possible calling to serve in that kind of line of vocation. And also, I've even studied them at, at SOAS, I did a course, actually, vernacular theology, you know, Christianity and social change in sub-Saharan Africa, that kind of stuff. Anyway, that's a whole different... Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah, well, so, yeah. this, so you really do have quite a bit in common. So I'm, <laughs> I'm happy that you took the words of appreciation in the right spirit. Now, you asked me about me. Tell me about growing up in... Were you in Monrovia as a boy? Well, I didn't grow up in Liberia, so that's what... Uh, let me get to that. You know, I was... Born in Liberia, and both my parents are Liberians, so born in Liberia. But my father had studied medicine in Germany just after the Second World War, when Liberia was really growing quite fast, and was a time at which our, our then President Tubman decided to use that money to really build human capital in the country. So he created a major scholarship program. As long as you got you know top grades, leaving school, Liberians were sent across the world to study engineering, medicine, whatever. My dad ended up in Germany. And became a doctor in Hamburg. And when he came back, part of the deal was that you, you have to give back two years of government service to essentially pay back your scholarship. So my father returned 
from Germany in uh, 68, I'm born in 69. And during that period, when I was born in Monrovia, he was doing his government service. But as soon as he finished that, he was employed by a German Liberian mining company to become one of their doctors up country. So we moved from Monrovia to the center of Liberia. And then shortly after that, my father was appointed the first Liberian medical director of the hospital system there. But the company being German, they said, we're going to appoint you to this, and we know you're good. But before you can take up the post, we're going to send you to Germany to shadow a medical director in a German hospital. So I'm born in Liberia, spent two years in Liberia, and then we go as a family to Germany. That's where I learned German. But my father, after two years there, we then go back to Liberia. But then two years after that, I hope you're doing the maths. Two years after that, um, I'm sent to England to boarding school. And then I never live in Liberia again. I go back to Liberia. I never live in Liberia. So in that sense, of my, I'm 52 years old now. I've only lived approximately, I would say, five to six years in Liberia in the 52 years. And then I go to the UK. And I go to boarding school, university. Then I end up working with the BBC. End up, I should say, because I didn't really choose it straight away. I, the war had happened in Liberia. And I was, I was at a place called London School of Economics, which is across the road from house, which then was the headquarters of the BBC World Service. And I basically lost contact with my parents in the middle of 1990, just before the rebels, Charles Taylor's rebels hit Monrovia. Remember the last phone call was my birthday, 15th of May. My parents said, the rebels are coming. We hear that the front line is pretty close to the house. Wish you well. We don't know when we'll speak to you again, but look after yourself, son. Put the phone down. Wow. And I didn't hear from my parents again. Must have been October that year. So there I was. In August, basically, you know, my mind going a bit, Ooh, what's going on? You know, because I was sponsored by my parents. I'd gotten a place at Oxford to do my master's in economics. My dad was supposed to be paying for my fees. It's getting close because it's August now. I'm supposed to be going up to Oxford in September that year. And because I'm Liberian, we're not part of the Commonwealth. So you're not getting any kind of support from those kind of things that the Ghanaians and Nigerians might have mm. to the British system. Somebody told me, you know, I'm seated in the LSE quad, but why don't you go to the BBC? They might have more information. Because in those days, there wasn't 24-hour TV news or anything. You only got like a little bit of news. And don't forget, in those days, also the World Service could not be heard in England. You know, you had this kind of 648, which is a medium wave thing, which now and then we gave you, give you some, but you mm. want to give you a little bit of news. So I thought, I want to find out what's going on in Liberia. So I go into Bush House and I said, can I speak to um, folks in Africa? And he goes, there's a phone there. That's their number. I call up. I picked up the phone, a very gruff voice. Was, yes, can I speak to the editor, please? Yes, this is the editor, Robin White. I'm Liberian. You don't sound Liberian. Yes, I'm Liberian. I've been here a very long time, you know, at school. He goes, come upstairs. So I um, sent someone down, go upstairs. He goes, good thing you came, young man. We recently had a really um, disturbing situation where we reported that the rebels had been in one place and they were somewhere else. So what I'd like you to do for me is, can you just, as they filed stories come in today, the stories were being filed down a satellite line, not you know, very good quality. They were being transcribed. And then they had a big map. And they said, Max, so what you should do for us is those names that our reporter's mentioning, look on the map and tell us where you think it is. So I did that. And he goes, anything else we could do for you? I said, well, I just want to read and find out what's been going on. So sit in that corner, you can read all the news. But then when I was leaving, he said, so what are you doing? I said, well, I'm supposed to go up to Oxford. I need to find some money. And my whole status here, you know, I'm a Liberian, whatever. He goes, well, while you're doing that, why do you come in for a few hours every day and spend some time here? So that's how my connection with the World Service started. Wow. And then he goes, we have this monthly quiz. 
We're looking for some guests. Why didn't you take part in the quiz? I took part in the quiz. Gave top in the quiz that day. Then he goes, looking for someone like you. Maybe we give you a one month or two months contract, you know? And so I got to change my papers. Go, well, sort that out first. So I managed to go borrow some money from my cousin, go to a lawyer. says, well, yours is a done deal. You've been here 10 years. We'll file it in, go down to home office. And yeah, I've got my extended leave to remain. So I could go back to the BBC. I'm saying this because the interesting story is how it all trajectory goes. I go back to the BBC, end up with a three-month contract. Oxford was then going to give me a scholarship. So my academics were going to be free, but I need to have this, what they call battles, which is something basically pay for your lodging. I needed like four grand. I was in debt. I didn't have four grand. So I think what I'll do is I'll defer my place and then I'll earn that money. And then I'll come back up to Oxford. We deferred for um, a year. So then I started working the BBC. My first BBC contract was six months and it was extended to one year. I deferred it for a second year. I ended up staying 11 years of the BBC World Service. Then I decided I wanted to go back to Africa. And I ended up getting a one-year unpaid leave from the BBC, kind of sabbatical, to go to the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa on a one-year contract to help them build a radio facility there to be used to train journalists to report better on development issues. You can know where this is going now. So it goes from one year, I'm enjoying Addis two years. Same thing happens with the UN. I ended up giving up my full-time job at the BBC to stay in Africa, the UN. Did that for a good 13 years, but not based in Addis because we're traveling all around Africa. Then I get the call to go and work at Kofi Annan. But went first as deputy director, then and then up as director of this. And then we closed down the ATP Foundation. And then I decided, well, you know what? I've worked with Kofi Annan. I don't think I can go much higher in terms of you know leadership and people who can inspire me in the UN system. So I was offered an opportunity to serve as a special advisor to President Obasanjo of Nigeria. And so I decided, you know what, I'll resign from the UN. I'll do this work of a passenger and also do my academic work, my own kind of moderating and writing work. I ended up resigning from the UN. And it took basically two years sabbatical. And then I decided, you know, what, I want to get back in the game again. So I saw this job at IEA. Our last two reports in, with the Africa Progress Panel have been on energy. And I yeah. know that Kofi Annan was very passionate about this. He, and he, as you know, he died in September 2018. When I saw this job, I thought, well, this could be a great opportunity. APP isn't there anymore. But first ever Africa program manager, never had one. Maybe I can go there, plant the flag, really build all the kind of networks for them and grow this. And I'm passionate about it. So that's why I ended up applying for this job and going through the whole process and then getting appointed. And, and I love it because it really is continuing the work we'd started in 2015 during that year of the Paris COP with Kofi Annan and the APP. And now taking it to another level. I'm learning a lot, enjoying it. And it's a fascinating and very important time. So my trajectory is never really planned. It's kind of opportunity how things move forward, you know. Well, there's a common thread, which is which exactly. is Africa. And I know you're at a, the International Energy Agency at the moment, and I'm dying to talk to you about the work of that institution, which all of our audience will be aware of the IEA if they weren't before, because of that seminal report that was produced just a couple of months ago around the urgency of getting to net zero and just how far behind the curve we are as humanity the gargantuan efforts that are going to be required to get us to meet that target by 2050. But just before we get there, I'm really interested to get some, some insights from the exposure you've had to these great leaders by any standard, Olusegun Obasanjo, Kofi Annan. What have you observed from your close proximity to um, these global statesmen, but Africans? Are there any anecdotes or lessons that you can share? I've been privileged, best to have worked with some of Africa's most influential, senior, and highest level 
leaders, both political and within the kind of entrepreneurial financial world. You know, I've worked closely with Mo Ibrahim, Strike Masiwa, mm-hmm. as well as Abbasanjo, Lisko Abbasanjo, Kofi Annan, and others. And Festus Mahai, former president of Botswana, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, Liberia. And these people, I, I've actually been, you know, I'm in meetings with them, taking the notes, mm-hmm. advising, writing. So, so it's not just, you know, I've worked with them. I've got to see them one-on-one in the room and see how they tick and also see them then from the, the room, how they engage with people. As a journalist, I had the opportunity as a very young man to interview Nelson Mandela, Walter Sisulu. When you get close to leaders and as a journalist, you, you journalistic mind, you're trying to think through, you know, what is this person's story and what really makes them tick? Then of course, I've worked with others. And I think we're talking about leadership. It's not all good. I've seen the bad as well. I won't name, but I've seen people who are at a high level who, in my sense, are just, you can go to the best business schools and whatever, but you, you don't have it. And those who have it, first of all, they have heart. They have heart. By that, I mean, not just a loving heart, but they have heart. They have courage. They have courage of their own convictions. And because they are secure in who they are, and they have this courage and this confidence, they also exude a certain type of charisma, which means that they have to say less to actually influence the situation. One thing that Kofi and I said, said it to my team recently, you know, in a meeting, no matter who is in the meeting, young, old, experienced, newcomer, you always try to make sure that by the end of the meeting, everyone, even the intern, has had their say. And if they're feeling shy, he would draw them out. And the second thing, which a very strong, courageous leader will do, they're not the first to speak. They're not trying to get in the space, you know? Mr. Anahi would sit and ask others for their view, and then he would come in. And again, you remember, he was softly spoken. That doesn't mean he was soft. This thing about the charisma being soft but steely character and letting other people have their say and then pulling it together. And then the leader has to make the call, right? Then making the call. Rather than others sometimes who I've seen where it doesn't work, where they put a lot of things on the table, there's not much clarity, you know, they kind of monopolize conversation. At the end, you don't even know what they feel. That's a bad leader. But there are leaders who don't know what their conviction is, where they're coming from. That causes mm-hmm. a lot of issues can be diplomatically, but also within teams and, and, and organizations. So I think really leadership upfront, it's about people. It's about giving all people, all members of your team, the opportunity to feel that they're part of the team, but also having the courage of your convictions, to let people know the buck stops with you and that you lead from the front without necessarily being the first to always say things. I mean, that's my mm. personal view from those I've worked with. Really interesting. I don't know if you know this, but I'm going to use this opportunity to plug an initiative that my firm Africa Practice is jointly responsible for. It's called Stories Africa. And for our audience, you can log on to uh, www.storiesafrica.org. It's a collaboration with the World Economic Forum's Leadership and Values Initiative, Levy, in which we're trying to curate and promote stories of inclusive and values-based leadership. And it's really against a backdrop, a sad backdrop of appreciating or deteriorating governance in Africa. And last year's Mo Ibrahim report indicated that that is indeed the case. And across the board, we've seen deteriorating governance standards. And yet we know those of us who have privileged enough to have traveled all across the continent and worked in different sectors, different quarters, that there is no shortage of inspiring leadership at all levels of society in the continent. 
but actually when we point to our political leaders, because that's inevitably where most people are concerned or thinking about in the context of leadership, somehow we find ourselves with a deficit of great leadership. People who, as you say, are secure, comfortable, and empathetic in their roles. I wonder if you could share some of your reflections on just why that is, why somehow with the passage of getting to that office, we're not better served by our leaders there. I have some views of my own because like you, I've been privileged enough to work in proximity with leaders across the continent. I did some work with Lusagun of Asenjo in close proximity, much like yourself. I got to observe him at close hand and others. And I'm going to generalize hugely here, but my observation has been that in many respects, by the time leaders get to that office, political leaders, they are prisoners in their own palace. They have been compromised by vested interests and lobbying interests. And without the ability to surround yourself by really good people who who you trust and can depend on, it is very hard to be effective in that role. That's my observation. But I, I wonder if you could share some of your insights on that subject. This is actually something I'm passionate about, both in practical sense, my career, but also academically. I'm passionate about politics, power and institutions, but also about individuals in power and how power is exercised. It's, for me, life is about politics and it's about power. Mm-hmm. And it's about conflict. Conflict is not necessarily a bad thing, but how it's managed. I'm also an honorary fellow at Leeds Beckett University, Leeds Business School. I work there on governments and uh, leadership are some of the things that I'm going to be looking at. I would disagree with you slightly. I agree but disagree with you slightly mm-hmm. in terms of the people being captured. They've gone through a mm-hmm. lot and they've been captured. I think that a lot of the bad leadership and bad leadership exercised badly is actually when they're parachuted in or they've gone too far, too fast, mm-hmm. and then they're there. And then, wow, they're hungry men, as we say. I give yes. an example of my own family. We have an ethos of public service. My great-grandfather was vice president of Liberia in 1924, 1928. So this is under the First Republic. And he was the first indigenous, i.e. of um, 100% non-emigre, not from Nigeria, mm-hmm. not from Rio, not from the Caribbean, not from Congo, like my other um, ancestors mm-hmm. were. He was, he was Gribble, Southeast Liberia. He was the first one in the whole First Republic, and the only one until the coup d'etat when Indigene, so to speak, overthrew the, the First Republic. Anyway, I remember once sitting around the table with, with family, and we're talking about how Liberia had gone off track, you know, where like Samuel Doe had gone from master sergeant to president. I picked up a historical dictionary of Liberia, just started looking at biographies of people. Look, my great-grandfather, for example. By the time he was vice president, he had been senator, he'd been a lawyer. He'd done so many different things where he'd had the opportunity to see how his leadership skills and his people skills tested. And he was his own man. So when he gets there, you know, he's able to also take some bold decisions. He decided not to run for a second term with President King. That's a book I'm going to I'm plan to write. Yes. Steps away and becomes a judge and dies later with his with reputation intact. King goes on, President King of Liberia, to re-election and then to end in infamy. Basically, he's impeached. There's a whole scandal there about a forced labor to Fernando Po in Equatorial Guinea. But what I'm trying to say is that I think that many leaders in modern Africa, because the whole ability to exercise power has not been tested, early on enough, and they have their internal kind of venal or whatever lives, mm. as soon as they get there very quickly, they're like, as Buddhists, they're hungry ghosts, things like that. Mm. And then the society enables them to do that. 
but one of the things I've been looking at is how can we empower or enable younger leaders early on? So the issue is not just be looking at the presidency, prime minister, ministers. Yeah. If you see talented people, you can let them have a go at being their MP and you mentor them there. Let mm. them be like Sivette uh, Gibson Liberia, be a, a mayor. And you mentor people then. This is a discussion I've had with some of the more experienced leaders I, I've worked with. What can we be doing so that by the time someone gets to the top, at least know what it is to be able to say no and control. And that's one part of it. The second part, though, also, Marcus, is some people say society gets the leaders they deserve. But I turn it around. Leaders are a product of their societies. Yeah. Any individual in the position, even some of the ones we've worked with, could Kofi Annan have been able to be Kofi Annan if he'd been in Ghana in 1982? I mean, he would have been Kofi Annan, but to be, could he have led in the same way? Because mm. the Ghanaian society at that time when Jerry Rawlings was doing what he did, the tensions and drives and energies of the society. Bassanjo, as an elected president in the 90s, was different than number two to Murtala Mohammed in the 70s, and different to Bassanjo handed over power. The society was changing. So I'm not saying that we individuals do not have responsibility for their action. The two, it's like an interesting dance. So you, we also have to fix the societies and also try and do the best to enable individuals. And if you want to fix societies for them to be able to, to allow leaders to really lead in the best manner, it must be societies that have some kind of connection with their, their roots in terms of how politics is exercised. You look at, say, Botswana, the success of Botswana, mm-hmm. or say Tanzania, other countries where it's because although they, they are now in the modern world, there's still some things there which are very traditional. Like look at Japan. Model, I've studied Japan. Yeah. Japan is deeply modern in terms of technology. And it's deeply Japanese and traditional in terms of how its systems and its politics function. And in many African countries, we cut the umbilical cord and then we've now drifted. My, my paper at SOAS on the Liberian War, which was basically historical political economy analysis, talk about ghosts, where we basically fell between the traditional and the modern. And we're drifting in that space. And we have no anchors. And without those anchors, we have opportunity for leaders, warlords, I'd hate, you know, faction leaders to come in there and start to take on masks of modernity with some of the worst aspects of the traditional, which they use as an excuse to basically rally their troops and their constituency. And then we end up basically going nowhere. So Liberia is turning and turning and turning because it's basically cut its past. Yeah. And go into the modern world and don't look back. And so leaders basically are, are confused. You mentioned Liberia there, and I think it's a common phenomenon across the continent. And funny enough, I was talking about it with a friend of mine just at the weekend. I live in Botswana, as you know, and here we get to observe firsthand the traditional forms of governance through the Hotler system, which is still very prevalent in society as an important form of governance and local development. Yeah, my observations have been that whilst all the the development and governance focus has been very much on modern systems and democracy and huge investments and effort and energy and and sanctions for those who don't follow that model invested in that area. Actually, those traditional forms of governance and the customs attached to them are so important for the fabric of society. Again, just to repeat, I'm, I'm in Botswana and I observe so much the South Africanization of our culture. And I'm reminded that it was only just over 50 years ago that the citizens of this country quite literally built this country at independence. 
You know, donations of cattle were given by almost every citizen to pay for Botswana's university. That solidarity is more and more absent from our societies. I get to observe it at relatively close hand in a relatively small society as we have in Botswana. I think it holds true even for bigger countries like, like in Nigeria. I'm reminded that the critique we place on our political leadership is in many respects a critique seen through the, the lens of modern democracies, you know, how we expect modern democracies to function. And yet under the surface, that's head of state or head of government is busy working with a traditional system. And actually that traditional system has many merits that to certainly to the Western observer or through the lens of, of, a, of a modern society culture, it's very hard to credit. I'm fascinated by this subject. And I wonder if we will see some societies turn not backwards, but look to restore some of those traditional norms and customs that were really very effective in maintaining cohesion and absence of conflict and between in some of our societies. I'm loving this conversation, Marcus, because this really is something I'm, I'm passionate about. Yeah. I am absolutely, and I, I spent so much time thinking and working on this academic and also just observing it. I've traveled around, I think, 48 or 49 African countries, but let's go back to what I know. And just to be clear in terms of what I was saying, not you, but a lot of people get confused between, when I say traditional, it's not necessarily mean the traditional is opposite to modern, but it's yeah. the flip side. Some people think it is, no. Traditional is customary, it's what you're used to. And to me, this also, whereas the modern is like a technos, it's knowledge, it's all in the mind, and it kind of finds ways to do, rationally do things. Traditional has a very spiritual, spiritual energy around it. And what, what has happened in many African countries, and, and leaders though, you see, if leaders have that spiritual connection to the society, and it's not being cut, they don't do certain things, because there's a, there's a kind of sanction. I'll give an example, you probably know this, having worked in Nigeria, or West Africa, where the, the kind of mutual clubs that people have, which in Liberia we call Susu, where we all get together every month, we put some money in the pot, and then yeah. one month is for you. That system, error term, that i.e. people delinquency rate, it's so, so low because yeah. it's customary, it's traditional, and people have this kind of spiritual sanction that if I don't pay this back, you know, I won't go to this wedding, I won't come to my funeral, there's like all that kind yeah. of stuff. Whereas people go can quite easily go to a bank and not pay a bank back. And it's the same thing when we talk about democracy and, and politics. The leaders basically, although they're linked to the susu, a suit of a modern world, which is like the modern bank, and they're just taking the money, you know what I'm saying? Yes, Political yes. resources and not paying it back. And we need to fix that. I'm really enjoying this part of the conversation. Oh, fascinating. And other institutions sort of working on this and trying to see how we can revive or reinforce some of these, these customs and norms that have been effective in maintaining good governance and development standards? There are some, but yeah. to be honest with you, the, the way we're talking about it now, I've not been involved in the, many of those kind of conversations recently. What you still have is, especially if you have, say, Europeans involved in it, they're mainly anthropologists and they're doing a lot of good writing, whatever, but they're not mm. really close to the modern politics and policy world. And when you yeah. do find those who are involved in kind of institutional, they're still trying to build a modern house. And often they see the traditional as old and backward and bad. The way you and I are discussing it, where it's not, it's something that's mm. energy around. The roots are important for every tree. Yeah. And I have, I, maybe there are others who are doing this, this kind of blending now, as they do, say, in Asia, you know. But I, I, I don't know. I, I haven't read the latest uh, literature on it. For example, the Bavatic School of Governance, Nyabi Woods, is doing some good work, institutional still. Let's look, how do we get these pegs to fit in the 
round holes, the square pegs, you know? Yeah. Or how do we, do we, do we chisel down the square peg a bit to make it more round? But it's not the way we're talking about it, where it's the, let's delve into the traditional and see. It was, of course, the, the flawed experiment of Zaire, where Mobutu had his uh, La Recourse à la Authenticité, which is mm. to go back to the past and think, but he basically used that as a pretext to run uh, Congo into the mud. Mm. Then we also have in the Akan tradition in West Africa and Ghana, the Sankofa bird, I'm sure you know that, which is the bird which is looking backwards to pick a golden egg off its back. And that essentially saying it, that essentially means in order to go forward in life and anything, you must go back to the past and take the jewels and take the benefits of the past with you to go forward. So that kind of Sankofa attitude is needed across African polities today. Fascinating. Oh, Max, well, I'd love to find some time to talk to you about the subject offline, but yeah. I'm conscious that we're running out of time and I have a duty to let you get back to your, your day job. I'm going to try to segue in a little bit to your day job. You're at the International Energy Agency today. You're speaking to us from, from Paris, which is the headquarters of the IEA. I mentioned at the outset that seminal report that the IEA produced just a couple of months ago now, I think, mm-hmm. on the global energy outlook. and the climate crisis and the requirement for there to be more urgency, more effort placed into getting to net zero in order to climate heating. I'm interested to talk to you as an African to get your observations on really what this means for African societies. We know that Africa is responsible for a negligible amount of carbon emissions. You may be able to tell me, so I'm not going to make an assumption there. But we also know that there's an inordinate global pressure for all economies to transition to a clean energy supply. We obviously have lots of oil-dependent economies on the African continent. And my observation is that, with few exceptions, our governments are not moving fast enough to wean their economies off of fossil fuels. I'm speaking to you in a week where oil prices are at high. I don't think they've been seen at this high level since 2014. It's very hard for us to make sense of this energy transition and its implication for our societies. Let me tell you what concerns me. I'm genuinely concerned that our African nations are not embracing what is a global agenda for this transition to clean energy in any way fast enough. And that what will happen is that we will find ourselves with stranded assets in the near term, which will lead to further economic problems, challenges for our societies. That's a pessimistic note, and I'm keen to get your views on that. And hopefully you'll be a little bit more optimistic than I am when addressing that. But also as as a follow on, if I may, and I'm going to try and link this in, if I may, it may be a bit clumsy, to spirituality and to our natural environment in Africa, which everyone knows is unique. And it's diverse, of course, from the forests of the Congo Basin to the savannas of East and Southern Africa and everything in between. And I have a philosophy, and I I say it to anyone who, who will be patient enough to listen to me, that actually there's huge advantage, I think, and I believe, in leveraging our natural capital, which is of huge value to humanity. In essence, the theory goes that it's our Congo rainforest that is the carbon sink, an important carbon sink to the world. It is our rangelands that are going to sequester 
global carbon emissions. It's this vast expanse of land that if we focus on restoring and using to, to feed our societies in a way that we have frankly failed to do, and I know how much time you and Kofi Annan have spent on trying to materialize this agricultural revolution in Africa. And it's disappointing to me to see that after so much investment and energy, and we're a long way short of achieving that potential. But perhaps there is potential now in marrying what I would call traditional agricultural practices that are so commonplace in African societies, doing them at scale in a way that is also good for climate, helps build resilient societies and contributes to this battle that we have as humanity to get to net zero. But of course, critical here is jobs and compensation. It's the money that's going to drive that as an incentive, an economic incentive for African societies to do that. And so I hope I've given some sample of what I see as a potential future for Africa in this transition. But I'd be interested to see if that's really an idealist uh, talking or thinking and what the status is from your standpoint and from your perspective of where you sit at the IEA. Well, Marcus, if, if I was your professor and that was the end of the exam after my lectures, I would have given, I'll give you a first because you've mentioned all the key words and all the key issues I've been been discussing and talking about for the last few months and if I were to get a, a hundred pounds every day or every week where I have to mention uh, stranded assets I'd be a millionaire by now because it's something yeah. that I really am thinking about and discussing with people and so forth but first to come back to the net zero you have to also understand that this sits within the context of the Paris Agreement and moving towards keeping mm. the global climate below 1.5 and nearly every country in the world has signed up understand to the Paris Agreement and many countries since then have been making net zero pledges. Many in Africa also have made pledges for 2050. Some have not, some are saying maybe and around the world are saying 2060, some are saying 2070. But the key thing is that the world is racing towards a, a net zero world. One thing to also be very clear about, the world is racing towards net zero and the world as a whole is not going to win the race until we all get there. However, certain members of our global team will have to get there faster than the others and would have to make the extra effort to get there by 2050 because they have been, you know, they've built up their modern energy systems. They, they are the so-called, you know, historic emitters. And so when you look at the IEA Net Zero Roadmap, it's talking sectorally very much to many of those, those advanced economies which have made the 2050 Net Zero pledges. Because don't forget, pledges have been made but there were no details about what it would take to get to that. And so the IEA report from this year essentially puts things in place and say, if we're going to get to net zero, well, this needs to happen. There are about 400 milestones. Many people picked up on them, the few that are related to, to fossil fuels. Now mm -hmm. let me segue in, into Africa. First and foremost, although I, when I checked the kind of pledges that were made, some African countries have said they will move towards net, they agreed to move towards net zero by 2050. If they can, that's good. Africa is not in the advanced guard getting to 2050. Africa will need to take time because each country, again, when I say Africa, this is a region, but each country will have to set its own pathways to net zero. And what I'm pleased to know, and that's why I feel optimistic, is that I can't think of a single African country that has not yet said that, yeah, we need to go to get moved towards a net zero world. It's just the issue of timing. And even our historic, well-known producer economies, and I'm doing some work closely with some of them right now, have been very much oil-based. They know the way the train is going. And they're not saying 
burn, baby, burn, let's do, use oil. No, mm. they're trying to transition now, like, for example, Nigeria, from more oil-based to a gas-based economy. But that is a trans- transition. And the issue we have is that when others are saying, who have used their North Sea gas and are bringing on Nord Stream gas from Russia, are saying to Nigeria and other countries, no, Africa, don't touch your gas, then those countries have issues with that because mm. they need the gas for baseload power. And also, of course, we have an abundance of renewables in Africa, but we're not at the stage yet. And of course, renewables are coming down, solar costs. Mm-hmm. We're not at the stage yet for the renewables on their own to drive the base load power generation that we need to upscale African economies, the growth, sustainable growth, the jobs agenda we have. So gas, this is what those countries are saying, has to be in there as a transition. The pushback is that if it is a transition, what is the time frame? And that's where now the politics comes in the argument and also the, the, the need for increased investment and also financing to enable Africa to make the investments it needs for that transition and also to, to grow the renewables. It's the second report that came out this year from IEA that I'd like to reference is the Financing Investment in Emerging Markets and Development Economies report. One of the headline messages there is that there's a lot of money in the global system, money going into energy, mm. but most of it is going into the advanced world, advanced economies. When it needs to be going, into developing economies and emerging markets because the kind of bang for your buck in clean energy investment now is much more if you're sending it to India and China and Africa than if it is mm. you're giving extra to Denmark or Spain because as those economies grow, they, they demand more energy. And so therefore, you, know, you need to make sure that as their energy demand grows, generation for that energy is actually clean. People like yourself and others who are kind of in this world between the investors and the policies you have a role to play also as a mm. practice to make the case for this investment, for the Goldman Sachs, the Black Rocks, and whatever, to be putting much more. It says that a seven-fold increase is needed. In- and is that, is that the quantum of money that's available? Because my sense has been that there is no shortage of money available for mm. investments in renewable energy projects. The challenge has been, from Africa's vantage point, to attract that money. And for that, you need the appropriate policy and regulatory environment. And we have had an absence of that. It's only just really within the last three, four weeks that South Africa has introduced a lifting of the restrictions they had on independent power production, as an example. It feels to me that there's no shortage of money. There's no shortage of desire on the part of some of these institutions you mentioned, asset managers, fund managers, to invest in in renewable energies. But unless we can get our policy and regulatory environments right on the continent, we will miss out on these flows of funds. They will go to Asia or, or Europe in the way that you suggest. Is that something that the IEA is, is working directly with African countries? Very much so, Marcus. The regulatory environment is something that needs to happen. We need to scale up. But just to, be, to clarify, when I'm talking about energy investment, energy sector investment, it's not just renewables. Renewables yeah. actually has done remarkably well, even within the COVID situation, although the cost of financing has gone up. It's doing well. I'm talking about the whole value chain. If Nigeria needs money for increased gas, gas power generation because it you know, wants to move away from the diesel and so forth, money for that, for a certain time frame, not forever, you know, that's what I'm saying, but for, for a time frame. If um, South Africa is needing money regarding its uh, carbon capture and storage, mm-hmm. that, the whole thing about reskilling jobs that are going to be lost in certain sectors, investments in human capital for that, that kind of investments. So the whole package, yeah. energy efficiency, yeah. uh, we low work in energy, energy efficiency because appliances, you can save so much energy if you just get the right appliances. Yeah. We need investments in that as well. It's a broad range of things that are needed in addition to the renewables agenda. 
and it's still not there yet. You know, we need a lot more clean cooking. Yes. It's not just energy, it's health. And there's a gender equity issue there as well. Yeah. We need to massively scale up investments in clean cooking. And it should not just be an issue for, you know, the kind of gender ministries, or it's not just a, it's not a woman's issue, it's a human issue. Yeah. Know, and it's an energy issue. We, but we're not getting the money into that sector that we need, not the scale we need. Another issue that I'm passionate about is this natural capital. Because there, when we talk about net zero again, you know, Africa is blessed because we've got these forests, forest resources, which actually capture so much globally. We don't emit so much more. So if we, if we start to account even better for what we have, Africa can make a case on the global stage that actually we're pretty close as a region to net zero. That, that can allow us to use this that we want to use for a short period to just get our levels so that you know, we, we can have electric cooking stoves rather than cutting down biomass. And for electric cooking stoves, of course, we want an available kind of power system so that renewables are key to it. But in case renewables drop off, we need a bit of gas in there to keep it going. We need investments for that. So it's a judicious mix, really, that, yes. that Africa requires. But we need investments to arrive at that. Yeah. And it's very much people-centered, as you were saying, you know, there's jobs. But there are jobs yeah. also in the new economy. And coming back to our leaders, I think that you're right in saying that many have not yet quite understood this, the, the gravity of it and the importance of it. But I think some are getting it. We look at Nigeria again. It's led from the vice president's office, who then coordinates a range of offices. And I keep saying this when I speak to our other colleagues or people you know, mm-hmm. in African countries, that it's very similar to maybe 20 years ago with HIV AIDS. There was a period when HIV AIDS as a challenge was just a health issue. Then it became an issue of governance. Of the prime minister's and the president's office, then you started seeing the traction. We did a similar thing for, for energy. It's not just, I respect energy ministers, but it's not just their portfolio. It's a portfolio that finance, energy, environment, all working together over the oversight of the executive, you know, the mm-hmm. vice president or the president, to really drive it. Once we get to that in, in most countries, then we really will start seeing the change that we need. I mean, that's my personal view, and I, I'm happy to see that in some countries, it, it is like, look at Senegal, where the president comes from the this, this same background, so he's very much charged with that. I mentioned Nigeria, where also, you know, President Buhari actually is still the oil minister. <laughs> the the yeah. minister of state of petroleum is there, but the president still is charged with that, and the vice president is leading the whole decarbonization agenda. Great example. I know also in South Africa, and there's a presidential kind of task force, a group that looks at the energy yeah. crisis there. You know, yeah. So if you have more countries doing that, I think then we really will start to build the momentum that we need. It's lovely to hear you speaking and to the realism, the optimism, but, but also, you know, the realism, the pragmatism associated with what you see as a transition, that, that African economies won't just leap forward to these entirely clean, non-emitting energy supplies, but there will be a transition of getting progressively cleaner. It's encouraging to hear you talk about the leadership being shown, and you mentioned a number of countries there. But it's that clarity that I feel is, is lacking, and it's, it's lacking in the markets, and so it's reflected in, in our governance. I don't think our, our markets, dare I say, or even our, or our governance systems know what they should be investing in, because for fear that they will be left with the stranded assets soon. I hear a lot about hydrogen and electrolysis from water to produce hydrogen and oxygen to produce clean, green hydrogen fuel. It sounds so tantalizing and so appealing. And when I hear that the inputs are clean electricity through solar and wind and hydro, and that Africa has competitive advantage, well, not the whole of the continent, but some regions certainly, and that there's going to be so much demand from regions like Europe on Africa's doorstep. I'm interested to know where the sort of thinking 
what are going to require significant investments if some countries transition with confidence into the new energy future. How do you see that unfolding and, and where do you see the leadership coming from? Well, the leadership has to come from our leaders, but they have to first understand the global yeah. context. Hydrogen is on the map. Okay, Hydrogen is one of the new fuels. So therefore, coming back to what you're saying about stranded assets, if you're looking at, uh, say, building up a gas infrastructure in country X or Y, you would now be looking at seeing how you can future-proof it to ensure that after a while it's being used. I'm not an engineer, but it be, that the yeah. same infrastructure is being used for hydrogen in a way, and then some of the carbon, whatever, is captured and used you know, as part of that yeah. system. An investor also should be looking at, okay, country X says they want investment in gas. Are they doing it just for gas to export to markets that won't be there in 10 years' time? Or are they doing it for a regional, say, West Africa gas power market, mm-hmm. or the Southern Africa one where within Africa it will be used? And then after some stage, maybe several years down the line, this same infrastructure which we invest in can be used for hydrogen and other things. Okay, then this now makes it look possible that it's not just going to be stranded. Those are the, that's the kind of thinking. It shouldn't just be thinking over a very short-term horizon and over what the technologies of the day are. What are the new emerging technologies and how can we make that happen? That's very key. But the leadership is going to have to be coming from African leaders, but informed by what's happening at the global stage. Don't forget, African countries are part of the global discussion on energy transitions. They signed the Paris Agreement. Mm-hmm. They're going to COP26 in Glasgow. The UN has a high-level dialogue on energy, the first one in 40 years. In, in September, Africa will be there. And they can't say that they, they don't listen. One thing I say these days in the 21st century, I'm not insulting anyone, but for me, and I say this to friends, children, in the 21st century, ignorance is a choice. Because in your smartphone, you have access to the Biblioteca Alexandria. You have more information that Plato had at his hands, or some very famous wise you know, men. So you can, you can ask someone, you can Google, you can look and you can find out what's going on. You want to know, you know, what are the new technologies of the president of some country in Africa? You can call, you, can, you yourself can just surf. Oh, this is what Germany's doing. Oh, they're looking at hydrogen. Oh, this is what the Chileans are doing. You can do it. You can inform yourself. You can't sit there and say, oh, I didn't know. So, and I really do feel that it's, the onus is on our leaders at all levels now start to lead from the front on this issue, see the way the world is going, see the path towards net zero globally, and try to start to really chart a way and raise the ambition how it can be done at their own level. Mindful though that each country has to deploy its own judicious mix, make sure that you know people do not get left behind, that the jobs are not only do you secure jobs, but where jobs are lost, you create new jobs and you make sure the transition is people-centered, it's equitable, especially you know, gender equity, and you make sure that and also I'm very much concerned about intergenerational equity, so that you make sure that we're doing this also so that our children and children's children have a planet which has an environment in which they can live. And if you're a leader today, you're thinking of tomorrow, the day after tomorrow, and next year, hopefully. Well, Max, it's been a real pleasure to speak to you. Thank you for all of your time. On that note, I fear we must end. It's been a delight to reconnect with you after so long. I wish you well in your role at the IEA. You're at the right place at the right time, it would appear. And we're lucky that you're there. Thanks for all of your time. And I look forward to speaking with you again sooner than, than the last time we spoke, I hope. Hopefully one day in Botswana, maybe I'll come on safari. I really enjoyed this conversation. Again, it's very, it's really that I actually speak about the things, I'm, so many of the different things I'm passionate about in one conversation with someone I haven't spoken to for a while. So I really appreciated that. Thanks a lot, Marcus. 
Thank you for tuning into a Voices of Africa podcast this week. Voices of Africa is a forum where Africa's leading experts weigh in on cross-sectional topics affecting the continent. Experts share their views on how we can unlock greater value that will benefit industry, government, and communities. For more of our insights, visit our website or subscribe to our weekly newsletter, Views on Africa, in the description.